Matthew chapter 3 is the passage we're going to look at today. Last week we finished chapter 2. I want you to notice the very first phrase in Matthew chapter 3. Look at the very first phrase. Matthew sometimes is a man of few words. <laughs> for, for a guy who dealt with money, you would think a money guy would be a guy who, who's into details. And sometimes Matthew is, but in this case, in Matthew 3, verse 1, he just says, In those days John the Baptist came. And with that phrase there, in those days, John the Baptist came, Matthew is literally jumping all the way from Jesus' infancy to his adulthood. So we've just, we've just gone through a time warp, if you will. A time think of a time machine. We've had 25 years have elapsed from the end of chapter 2 to that verse, the beginning of chapter 3. The infancy story, of course, was, was very important. We've already looked at the genealogy in chapter 1, the, the virgin birth, all those things are very important. But that story provided some crucial background. And, and why did God put that there? It was clarifying the, identif- the identity of who Jesus really is. He was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the king of Israel. He was the one that the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to. He was the one all the the feasts and and the the rituals and the the tabernacle and the temple, all those things were pointing to Jesus Christ, and he finally has come. But now, here in chapter 3, Matthew is going to focus his story on the public ministry of Jesus. This is all about the public ministry of Jesus The first section we're going to look at here shows us that John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was an important figure. In fact, uh, Jesus gave great compliment to John the Baptist, talking about him as as a great man. He was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. But of all the things that Matthew could have said about John the Baptist, he just dives right into John's message. That's the, that's the first thing he talks about. It just says in, cha- in, in, in chapter 3, verse 1, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. No background. It immediately gets into his message here in verse 2. And here's what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll talk about that in a moment. But look at verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting here that Matthew doesn't give us any background information like Luke does. You can read Luke. Luke gives a lot more background information. Tells, you know, for example, who John the Baptist's parents were, you know. And gives great detail about uh, that. Instead, what is, what is Matthew doing? He just starts with his message. <laughs> to him, that was obviously an important part. But what is John's message? John has one main message in which he urgently calls the people to do what? To repent. He calls them to repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is near. 
By the way, that phrase, kingdom of heaven, is only used in Matthew. The, the kingdom of God is used, is used in the other Gospels. Now, Matthew, being a, a Jew, writing to Jews, had he, purposely using heaven in place of God because Jews didn't like to use the name of God, lest they be accused of taking his name in vain. So that's one of the reasons why uh, Matthew's the one using the kingdom of heaven here. But it's near, he says. By the way, this is the the same message that Jesus preached. If you look at chapter 4, verse 17, you will see Jesus essentially saying the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So apparently this is a good message to be preaching if Jesus was preaching it as well. And, of course, the apostles, they carried on that, that, that same teaching tradition that was started with John the Baptist and Jesus. They preached repentance as well. What does it mean to repent, though? This is an important message, so we need to understand it, because some people think, well, you know, if I'm showing remorse, and if I'm grieving, you know, if, if I'm sorry because I got caught, then that's repentance. No, that's not Repentance. Repentance means to come into a right relationship with God. Just because you're sorry because you got caught doesn't mean that you're in a right relationship with God. Often we see in Scripture there's external signs of repentance that are regularly including these type of things. For example, confession of sin. Confession of sin. Number two, prayers of remorse. And number three, abandonment of sin. It's not enough to just confess your sins if you intend to go right back into them. Then you really haven't repented. Because part of repentance is this idea there's a change of mind in regard to my sin, whereas before you loved your sin, now you hate your sin. And so if you're intending to go right back to that sin, then you really not, you're, you don't have the right view of sin. Not the same view that God has. So there must be an inclusion there of the, the forsaking of sin. What is John, or, or say, why is John preaching repentance? Now, some people think that's a strange message. Why is he talking about the, this, this call, if you will, to bring people back to a, a right fellowship and relationship with God? Well, think of it this way as a road has to be cleared of the obstacles before an approaching king. John is calling the people to clear the obstacles out of their lives before the approaching king comes. There's things in our lives, and there were things in their lives, that hinder the reception of the Lord. And and John's calling them to get rid of those obstacles so that you can receive the approaching king in his words. So he's calling for the people to get themselves ready for the king. He's calling for the people to prepare their heart and their life for the arrival of King Jesus. Now why is John preaching about the kingdom of heaven being near? The kingdom of heaven was near in the person of Jesus Christ. He was already on the earth as Jesus was, was preach, or as John was preaching this. But the full manifestation of of the kingdom of heaven had not yet arrived, had it? Jesus was there, but the full manifestation wasn't yet there. So by Jesus' day, you need to understand that the people of Israel wanted independence. They they were tired of these other kingdoms 
dominating them and ruling over them. And at this time, remember who's, who's the ruling authority over Israel? It was Rome. They were tired of these, these other kingdoms and empires ruling over them. The, the prophecies of David's house and kingdom enduring forever seemed as if they would never happen. Some of them probably had given up on, on the, the Davidic covenant that, that's mentioned in Samuel. But John the Baptist now comes along and he ignites Israel's hopes by preaching the kingdom of heaven is near. John's mission is like that of a messenger who precedes the king. And sometimes messengers would go before the king. They would prepare everybody. Hey, the king is coming. John's kind of doing that. He's that messenger going before King Jesus. He's the forerunner of, of the Messiah proclaiming his coming. And he's proclaiming the need for all the citizens of the kingdom to ready themselves for the king's arrival. So you need to think of John in that light. Well, how do citizens of heaven get ready for the king's arrival? Because that's what John was doing, but how do, how do citizens of the kingdom of heaven get ready? Well, their readiness is indicated by their repentance from sin. The readiness is indicated by the repentance from sin. That's why John is, re- is preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So that's John's message. In verse 4, we see John's appearance. John's appearance is quite interesting here. Look at verse 4. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. <laughs> so similar to his strange message, John has a strange appearance, doesn't he? John's appearance should have stirred up memories of prophecies of Elijah's return. Do you remember when we did the big picture of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi? Do you remember the last two verses of Malachi? And in case you've forgotten those, those verses, I'll put them on the screen here for you, because the, the, the Old Testament ends by pointing to a one who is to come in the likeness of the prophet Elijah. Look how the Old Testament ends in Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I, send, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Old Testament ends with the word destruction, or some of your translations say curse. Old Testament ends with destruction and curse. It, it, it ta- the Old Testament talks about these promises that were made, and in the New Testament, the promises are kept. And that's how the Old Testament ends. We have 400 years of silence, if you will, in that intertestamental period. And then John appears in the desert 400 years after this. He's wearing garments made of camel's hair. He has this leather belt around his waist. And for those who knew what Malachi was talking about, this should have immediately striked up images of Elijah the prophet. And by the way, camel's hair was often woven into a thick, rough, dark cloth, and it was used as an outer garment or a cloak, particularly by the nomadic desert dwellers. And it was, it was very appropriate clothing. Uh, 
It would, it would keep the weather off them. It would keep them warm at nighttime. But it was the clothing of poorer people. In addition, the garments of woven hair were sometimes worn as a protest against luxury and as a symbol of distress or even self-affliction. So John's garment of camel hair probably visualized the repentance to which he was calling the people. Uh, sometimes they would use camel's hair when, remember, they would put on sackcloth and ashes in the Old Testament. Sometimes the sackcloth was made out of camel's hair. Can you imagine camel's hair next to your skin? Now, he was, John's wearing it as an outer garment, but, but, but can you imagine camel's hair rubbing up against your skin? Yee. That would not be comfortable, and it wasn't meant to be comfortable. And so, often the people who had money, they would, they would buy things that would feel a lot more comfortable and things that would look better. It wasn't meant to look good. But what did John eat? The Bible mentions two things here that, that John ate. Number one, it mentions the locust, and you'll see a picture of, of a desert locust there. But his food, the Bible, it says that his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, this was a normal diet for someone who lived in the desert. You can imagine and appreciate, I hope, living out in the desert. They, they would not have had, uh, you know, there's no takeaway store just around the corner. There was no pack and save, you know, to go to. So, you know, they're, they're scrounging around out there in the desert, and there's not much to eat, okay? There's not, there's not huge, vast orchards. You know, it would have been hard to grow vegetables. If, so they're scrounging around, and locusts were quite plentiful out there. They're a migratory grasshopper, essentially. A very large migratory grasshopper. These, the Bible says these were permissible food for people of Israel to eat. And they were, by the way, also a very good source of protein, as I'm sure Bear Grylls would tell you. He loves eating bugs. He often mentions these bugs have protein, and it's been proven by scientists that bugs like grasshoppers have, are filled with protein so that you could easily uh, live off these things. And they were very abundant even in desolate areas. Now, why did Matthew put these details in this story? Some people, just, when, some people, when they read verse 4, they just kind of gloss over it and they say, oh, that's interesting. And it kind of missed the whole point of why verse 4 is there. Why did Matthew put these details in his story? He must have a purpose. I've been scratching my head over this and contemplating it, but um, here's what I think the purpose is. John's diet and his clothing probably caused everybody who saw him to, to, um, to, to take notice of it, of course. But I don't think John was trying to show off in that, why he was doing that. The, the clothing and, and the diet causes him to kind of stand out amongst the crowd. Uh, he's, he's, he's purposely rejecting all the luxuries of life. He's living out in the desert. He doesn't have nice fancy clothes. He's not eating you know, uh, uh, steak and, and uh, nice fish and that sort of stuff. And so combined with his powerful message, they called for repentance. His looks and every, every, his diet, his clothing, and the message are all calling for repentance. They're, they're a visual reminder as people were listening to him preach. And so John embodies in his lifestyle the message of repentance that he's actually preaching. So that's John's appearance. And in verses 5 and 6, we see John's baptism. 
Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So the response to John's call to repentance is extraordinary here, isn't it? Notice it says that there's lots of crowds coming out to him. Lots of crowds here. We got people coming even from the city of Jerusalem. Even the city slickers are coming out to see him. They're coming from all Judea. But they do not go out just to watch a show. That's not why they're going out there. Some people think, oh, this, this must have been entertaining. No, that's not why they're going out there. It wasn't an easy matter to go all the way out into the desert. So I've given you a map here. You can see people coming from, from Jerusalem going up here to the you know, past Jericho to the Jordan River, they had to go through the Judean wilderness. And that wasn't an easy place to travel through. It It was dangerous. Uh, In fact, you'll see in this next photo here, uh, here's here's some people traveling on mules or donkeys going through the Judean wilderness. it's, It's a very inhospitable place. Very dangerous. You could easily fall off a cliff. You could get attacked by robbers or whatever. There's various... Flash floods that could take place as well. So this was not an easy thing. That's the point. They weren't going out just to see a show. They had, they had far better motives than that to go out to hear John preach and to be baptized. So how do we know these people were serious about repentance, though? Well, one reason we know they're serious about repentance is because if you look at verse 6, verse 6 says that they demonstrated their repentance by confessing their sins. They were confessing their sins. Why? Well, because, remember, he's, he said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's, it's near, if you will. And so in light of the imminent judgment that was to come, they must be forthright with God. The nearness of God's kingdom leaves really no room for doubt here. They have to get everything out in the open. Because God sees everything, doesn't he? He sees our hearts. Surely those people knew that. God sees everything. He knows what's inside us. So there's no point in trying to fool God. Let's just get it all in the open in light of the judgment that is to come. They must show God by their actions and by their words that they are indeed putting their old ways behind them and they're ready for the arrival of the Messiah. That's what they're doing. But why is John's baptism significant? Why does the Bible mention this? And by the way, it's interesting, if you look at all the Gospels, it's obviously very significant because all the Gospels mention it. By the way, you only have to have one of them mention it to make it significant. But it was so significant, so important, that all of them mentioned the baptism of John. So John's baptism, by the way, uh, was both similar to, but yet it was also distinct from the other forms of baptism that were taking place at that time. In Israel, it was symbolic of purification. Often uh, an Israelite would think of, okay, you go in the water, you think of the water washing off dirt, but uh, you know, it, was, it, was, it was a symbolic of what was going on on the inside in the purification of them. But in contrast to other forms of baptism, John's baptism was a one-time baptism. Often people would get baptized many, many times. And in fact, the, the, the priests, remember, they would come into the temple or the tabernacle. They had to, there was a, 
a, a bowl there with water, and they'd have to constantly purify themselves through this ritual of cleaning. But John's baptism was a one-time baptism, which called for a personal commitment to God. And by the way, if you were baptized after your salvation, that's one of the things you were doing. You were you're saying, I'm committing myself wholeheartedly to God. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. You're identifying yourself with Jesus Christ when you get baptized. So John the Baptist was preparing the way for the Messiah. Number two, the second major section we see here is that the kingdom of heaven makes an impact. The kingdom of heaven makes an impact. It's near, John said, and it also makes an impact. And one of the ways we see this impact is that God sends a warning to the religious leaders of Israel. God sent a warning to the religious leaders of Israel. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, but when he saw, that's John, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The Bible specifically mentions a couple of the groups of religious leaders here. So let's let's talk about these guys because as we go through the book of Matthew over the next year, or however long it's going to take us, you're, you're going to see that these guys show up a lot. Jesus had a lot to say about these guys. The first group mentioned here is the Pharisees. So who were they? Well, here's what one commentary says about the Pharisees. Quote, They held a minority membership on the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were a lay fellowship or brotherhood connected with local synagogues and thus were popular with the common people. Their most pronounced characteristic was their adherence to oral tradition, which they obeyed rigorously in order to make the written law relevant to daily life. That's the Pharisees. Well, the next group mentioned in the book of Matthew here was the Sadducees. One commentary says this about the Sadducees, quote, The Sadducees were a small group with aristocratic and priestly influence who derived their authority from the activities of the temple. They held the majority membership on the Sanhedrin but were were removed from the common people by economics and political status and their support of Rome's rule over them, end quote. So you can imagine that didn't make them popular amongst the common people because they were essentially sucking up to to Rome and to Caesar. So, despite the fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, normally opposed one another, they didn't particularly like one another, you often see them fighting amongst themselves, uh, apparently they're united here as they come out to see John. They appear to join the crowds Responding to John's call to repent. Uh, maybe they were trying to blend in, but that, virtually that's impossible. 
perhaps they're coming to John as the official leadership of Israel. Maybe they're trying to validate, or maybe they were trying perhaps to investigate John's ministry. I'm sure they were a bit curious, why are all these people going out, way out into the wilderness, to hear this guy, who, who really has no credentials? But John, he sees through their hypocrisy, and he has some very harsh words for them. In fact, he actually called them a brood of vipers. <laughs> what an interesting title to give them. Why would he do that? Why would he call them a brood of vipers? Well, for one thing, vipers are known for their subtle approach and attack. These religious leaders uh, obviously have ulterior motives. But John is speaking... Uh, Holy Spirit reveals who these guys are. He reveals their motives to them. And so either they're attempting to get in good with the crowds, or they're coming to see if they can find faults, which they often did with Jesus, didn't they? They see this prophetic figure. Some are wondering, you know, is, is, is John the fulfillment of the prophecies of this one like Elijah who is to come? I'm sure they knew these, these prophecies in the Old Testament. So they're looking at, at this guy wondering, is he the fulfillment of this prophetic figure that is to come? But this guy's outside their circles. He's not, he's not in their group. He's not a groupie, shall we say, like them. So, and, and all these people are going out to hear him, so they're, they're, they're wondering, well, what are we going to do about this guy? And some people wonder why John is so harsh with the religious leaders. Some people even attack John for being unkind. But John is not attempting to subvert the leadership here. Rather, he's calling them to their proper responsibility as examples to the nation. They were the ones who knew the scriptures. They were the ones who, who read and studied deeply and taught the scriptures. They were the interpreters of the law. Of all the people, they should have been the ones who honestly and openly prepared their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. But did they do that? No. In fact, Jesus had the harshest words for these religious leaders, and so does John. They had the privilege of studying the Scriptures, these guys. They should have been the first to prepare themselves to receive the kingdom of heaven. But instead, what do they get? The Bible says they receive judgment. Now, why did John tell the leaders to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Now, that's an interesting phrase. John told them you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance has to be validated as being real through fruit in one's life. How do you know if something is real? How do you know if something is growing? How do you know if something's alive? Well, if you look at a fruit tree... You look at the fruit tree, you know it's alive if it's growing, if it's bearing fruit, right? If it's not bearing fruit, Jesus said, cut it down, it's, it's good for nothing. So the, the, the fruit is showing the evidence of what is inside, if you will, that there's life inside, that there really is repentance. Why? Because talk is cheap. Oh, these guys could probably talk the talk, but they didn't walk the walk if you will. The evidence of real inner spiritual life is always the fruit of a changed external life. And that's why Jesus called us to be fruit inspectors. As we look at one another, we can't see each other's heart, but we can see the externals, right? Jesus calls us to be fruit inspectors because 
If there's genuine repentance in life on the inside, it's going to show it on the outside. So if you don't understand what, it, what, what John's trying to say here, think of a fruit tree, okay? Think of a fruit tree for a moment. What is the identifying mark of a living tree? If you look at two trees, right? If two trees were side by side, how do you know if, if, if and, and one is dead and one is, is alive, how can you tell the difference? Well, the most obvious one is the fruit that it bears, right? This one has a lot of pomegranates on it. So the identifying mark of a living tree is the fruit it bears. A living tree is going to have fruit on it. A dead one obviously can't, right? So what is the identifying mark of a genuine Christian? Because, because John and Jesus often use these agricultural uh, uh, terms and language and stories to talk about the Christian life. So what's the identifying mark of a genuine Christian then? A life that has repented from sin and is bearing the fruit of repentance. Then in verses 11 and 12, we see the coming of Messiah will inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. The coming of Messiah will inaugurate God's kingdom on earth. Look at verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11 says this, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan, or fork, you could, fan there, by the way, has the idea of a, think of a, of a, of a pitchfork, okay? I'll explain that in a moment, but, but let's read on verse 12. His winnowing fan or fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let me explain what's going on here. So here we're essentially getting to the core of John's message. What is he doing? He's pointing ahead. He's pointing beyond himself to another person, isn't he? As important as John was, John, yes, had a powerful place in God's history, but John knows that he's just only preparatory to the main event. He's not the main event. It's a bit like going to watch a rugby game, right? Sometimes, if you've ever seen a rugby game, they, they've got all these, or, or any other sporting event, a lot of times they've got things going on on the field or the, the, the court or whatever it is, things going on ahead of time, right? They're not the main event. They're just preparatory to the main event. John realizes he's just preparation for the main event. He's, he's coming along. He's, he's calling the nation to repentance. But repentance is not the main issue here. The main event is the appearance of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John emphasizes the contrast here, by the way, between himself and the Messiah. How does he do that? Number one, I want you to notice how he, he shows the contrast between him and the Messiah. Number one, John points to the one who is coming after him. Now, why would he do that? He's pointing to the one coming after him. By the way, that's an expression that, that has very strong messianic expectations. People knew about the Messiah that's mentioned in the Old Testament. Many of them were expecting the Messiah, hoping for the Messiah to come in their life. And so John points to the Messiah, points to the one who is to come after him. Now let's, 
not forget who's speaking here. John's the one speaking. What is, what is John like? John's, uh, well, we saw a picture of him er- earlier, right? We heard some of the things that he ate. We, we, we heard about his lifestyle and his appearance, right? So you need to think of a manly kind of a guy, a rugged, tough desert dweller. He's used to harsh conditions. He's used to loneliness, living out in the desert. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he made Bear Grylls look like a wimp. I don't know. Uh, he, he could have had his own, you know, John the Baptist could have had his own TV show, Man vs. Wild. I mean, that, this is the kind of guy you need to think of. He's used to these hard conditions. He's, you know, every time Bear eats a, a bug, you know, he's got this funny look on his face and he's... Ugh, that's disgusting. Sometimes he spits it out, right? John eats this stuff for dinner. This is the kind of guy who's speaking here. And, and John says, there is one who is coming after me who is more powerful, who is greater than, than I am. <laughs> this, is no, this is not a weak guy saying this. So what's the point? It takes personal strength of body and soul to endure that kind of a hardship, doesn't it? And if you want to volunteer for that kind of a life, you go wear camel's hair and eat locusts and wild honey and live out in the desert by yourself for years upon years. It's not a nice life. It takes great strength of body and soul to do that. But John, he's looking to the one, the Bible says, who is more powerful, who's going to arrive with the power of God to inaugurate messianic rule. John recognizes he's just a servant. He's not the king. He knows he's not the king. And so as the servant to the king, John realizes he's not even worthy to carry the sandals of the messianic king. You say, what does that mean? Because the Bible mentions that there, right? But what does it mean? Well, the book, Manners and Customs of the Bible, has this to say about that, all right? Listen, it's on the screen. Quote, carrying the master's sandals was considered the most menial duty that could be performed. Upon entering a house, the sandals were removed by a servant who took care of them and brought them again when needed. If the master desired to walk barefoot, the servant removed his sandals and carried them. John felt himself unworthy to do for Christ even the meanest work of a servant, end quote. We see a humble man here, don't we? He says, I'm not, I'm not even worthy to do the lowest slave's job. I'm below the low slave. Well, number two, We see another contrast here in that John gives us contrast between himself and the Messiah by showing the difference in their baptisms. There's there's two different baptisms mentioned here. Number one, John baptized with, or you, you could actually interpret, in water for repentance. But the Messiah will baptize with or in the Holy Spirit. Two different baptisms. So what what is what's going on here? John's baptism is being replaced, if you will, by a higher and greater baptism. John can't do what Jesus did. So John's baptism is going to be replaced by the coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will inaugurate a baptism that brings 
both blessing and judgment. We, we see that in the language of, of, verses, uh, of verse 12, the, the idea of the wheat and the chaff. The division and the dividing up of the wheat from the, uh, from the chaff is the idea that Jesus is going to baptize the repentant with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. But the unrepentance, he's, he's going to baptize with the judgment of eternal fire. And that's why it mentions at the end of verse 12, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. By the way, the chaff, that was, that was the stuff you couldn't eat. The chaff was the rubbish, if you will, the, the, the leftover stuff from the wheat. You know, it, was, it was part of the stalk. They, they didn't eat that part. They ate the little, uh, little kernels of wheat. Again, if you're having a hard time, if you're being, um, if you're one of these people who are agriculturally challenged by uh, farm language that's used in the Bible, let me help you out, okay? Uh, let me help you out. The book of uh, Manners, again, Manners and Customs of the Bible has this to say about this, quote, Winnowing is a step in the process of grain whereby the grain is separated from the inedible parts. The stalks are thrown into the air with a wooden shovel, or a wooden fork having two or three prongs and a handle three or four feet long. The wind blows away the chaff and the straw, letting the heavier pure grain fall back to the ground. As a rule, this was done in the evening or during the night when the west wind from the sea was blowing, which was a moderate breeze and fitted for the purpose. The north wind was too strong, and the east wind came in gusts. John the Baptist used winnowing as an analogy of God's judgment when the Lord would separate the sinful from the righteous, end quote. So do you understand what what he's trying to say there? Again, if you're agriculturally challenged by farm language, I hope that helps you. Okay, it deals with the separation from what you could eat and what you could not eat. Picture a farmer farmer out there with his, his pitchfork throwing throwing the stuff up in the air, and the light stuff's going to get blown away, right? Heavy stuff's going to fall to the ground, which should have been the grain. That's, that's the idea. And, and, and the light stuff is, of course, unedible, and so they would burn that stuff. So that's what John's talking about here. And so the impact of John's message must have been profound upon these people. And so those who have come out to hear him with impure motives, are even now being warned that the Messiah is going to bring judgment on them. They're being warned. But those who have come with sincere motives, who, who, who've come repenting their sins, who've, who've, uh, who've come confessing their sins, they, they really want to have a right relationship with God, they're going to be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. So there's certain implications that we see here. Let's talk about the implications of this passage, okay? Number one, I've just written the whole thing out here for you. The arrival of God's kingdom in the preaching of John the Baptist is a warning of judgment. But it's not just a warning of judgment. There's there's the other side of the coin, if you will. It's also an invitation to life and an expectation of real change in the lives of those who respond. Who does the life come to? It comes to those who repent, those who truly change. Where there's real change, God offers life. But those who refuse to change, there's a warning of judgment. 
The preaching of John was a definite intrusion into the lives of those around him. He was a fiery kind of a preacher, and not many of us would like giving this kind of a hell and brimstone kind of a sermon, me included. It's not nice when you preach about hell or, or uh, the lake of fire or eternal punishment. Those, are, those aren't pleasant topics to talk about, but God talked about them in the Bible, and so we need to talk about them, and John did. You say, well, why, why wouldn't someone like to talk about hell and brimstone? Well, we don't like to offend, do we? We don't like to offend. We, we like having friends. We don't like being lonely. We enjoy having people around us. And so these kind of sermons would often drive people away, as Jesus often did. But thankfully, John does warn us of the coming judgment for those who reject the message of God's kingdom. And so my friend, please understand, we've got to be clear about this warning for ourselves. We must be clear. Don't fool yourself. Okay? God's judgment is coming. God does not overlook sin. God calls us to repent of our sin, to confess our sin, to abandon and forsake our sin. That's the warning here. But there's also a, a clear warning for those to whom we give this message. We need to be clear in how, if we are Christians and giving out the message, we need to be clear in giving that message. You see, we can create a warped view of God. And sadly, many in evangelical Christianity are giving a warped view of God. You ask the common person, what's their view of God? They'll say, God is love, right? Isn't that what you typically hear? God is love. God loves me. I'm special, right? You know, and, and, and the, the health and wealth and the prosperity gospel is very popular today. That's, that's kind of the extent of what people know about God because the false, a false message has been preached about God that is warped. God is not just love. He's far more than that. That's not balanced. And so we need to be careful that we don't create a warped view of God nor the gospel, the gospel is not just God loves me and has a great plan for your life. That is not the gospel, okay? And some of you are laughing because this is, this is preached all over the airwaves. It's filled in heaps of books. You'll see it in the Christian bookstores, even here in Hamilton. It's everywhere. That's not the gospel. You can't be saved, by the way, until you recognize you're lost. Okay? You need the bad news before you get the good news. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole other message, but we need to be careful that we don't create a warped view of God, but we also need to be careful we don't create a warped view of the gospel. Sometimes we can overemphasize judgment to come, but that's not most of us, though, is it? There's some people who love preaching hell and brimstone kind of sermons. You know, they only want to talk about the judgment, okay? That's an overemphasis. We also can distort people's view if we minimize the reality of judgment, if we never tell people about judgment, and judgment day is coming, then that's wrong as well. Okay? So what do you do? Pray for wisdom, okay? <laughs> Let me just tell you, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. God's message is not just about judgment. He's inviting those who respond to his message to experience life and the Holy Spirit here. So it's not just judgment here that John's talking about. It's also life in the Holy Spirit. That's a balanced message. So the good news is, yes, 
We have sinned against the holy God. And, and our sin, because of our sin, the wages of sin is death. We deserve eternal punishment. But God sent His Son, the greatest gift, so that we might have eternal life. And through Jesus Christ, all believers receive the Holy Spirit. By the way, this eternal life is not just an escape into the future, okay? When the Bible talks about eternal life, you need to think of it as more than just something that's going to happen to you in the future. Eternal life is also real change in your present realm of your everyday life, if you're a Christian. The reality is salvation comes in three tenses, okay? If you've never heard this, hear me out, because you might think I'm a heretic. All right, hear me out for a moment, okay? Salvation comes in three tenses, all right? So salvation is past, present, and future. Okay, if you're not getting me at this point, hang on. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. If you are a Christian, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And I probably just lost some of you right there, okay? So in case you're not getting it, let me explain it further to you. All right, there, there's, there's big theological words used in the Bible That might help you out here, all right? If you read Romans 4 and 5, it talks about justification by faith alone. Okay? Justified. God declares you righteous. Not just innocent, but righteous. You get the righteousness of Christ. Okay? That's a positional thing. You are justified. That happens at the moment of salvation. So you are saved. Sanctification is a process. That happens throughout your Christian life. You are being saved. But glorification is coming one day, my friends. It's coming. You will be ultimately saved in glorification. Well, does that make sense? I I hope that does. Because you need to think of eternal life as more than just, great, you know, I can't wait for that day to come. Well, if you're saved, what happened to you the day you were saved? The process started, didn't it? You were saved, positionally speaking. And the process will continue. And ultimately, you will be saved. Your body will be changed. And everything about you will be made perfect. That day is coming. So a key component of change is repentance. But We have a hard time understanding repentance. So let me give you a good, um, good definition, a good way to think about this, if you will. One commentator put it this way, quote, What is meant is not a merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing or, or penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance, end quote. So how can we repent? Because, frankly, that sounds difficult, doesn't it? Some of you might be thinking, okay, that is very difficult. (laughs) No, it isn't difficult. In fact, it's impossible. Did you hear me? Repentance is impossible. You and I can't do it. You You and I can't do it. So what is the source of real change? John mentions the source, by the way, of real change. It's not the latest self-help book, by the way. John didn't say, go down to your nearest Christian bookstore and buy 101 ways you can become a spiritual Christian. No. Uh, John didn't say, go to the internet and you'll find all the help you need. Listen to the, to the latest and greatest you know, pastor out there. No, that's not. John, John just says the answer is the Holy Spirit. 
He is the source of real change in repentance. And in fact, you'll see this throughout your New Testament. For example, in Titus 3, it says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, do you see Jesus Christ? It's through Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit, He has given us the Holy Spirit. So my friend, please understand that profession of faith is not enough. Okay, it's not enough to just go around saying, hey, I'm a Christian. No, that's not enough. Bearing fruit is the external evidence that new life is real. So bearing fruit is also required. Profession of faith is not enough. And in fact, Jesus made it quite clear, we're going to find out in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus said, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, you know, look at all these great things we've done. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done all these good works. And Jesus is going to tell them what? Depart from me, I never knew you. So it's not enough to just have a profession of faith. So life-giving force in a tree is evidenced through the fruit that is hanging on the tree. A tree that is alive is going to bear fruit. So it is a Christian who is alive, a Christian who, is, who has eternal life, if you will, is going to bear fruit. Because the Holy Spirit resides within every believer. So number two, the second thing we need to think about, and I'll end with this one, okay? As we think about the implications is watch out for the snare of spiritual pedigree. And say, if you don't get that, I'll explain it in a moment here. But watch out for the snare of, per, of, of spiritual pedigree. So my friends, we need to understand that religious pedigree, or your ancestry, if you will, does not guarantee citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> okay? John, by the way, it's interesting here, that John didn't honor the ancestral pedigree of the Pharisees and Sadducees, did he? He makes note of the fact that they had Abraham as their father, right? Some may find this surprising, especially those in Israel, since the covenantal promises to Abraham actually mark the beginning of the people of Israel in Genesis chapter 12. That's the Abrahamic covenant. But having Abraham as your father doesn't guarantee that God is your father. In fact, Jesus said, he, remember in John chapter 9, he said, you are of your father the devil. So there's this idea out there, and it's a, a false teaching, that everybody is a child of God. No, not true. That's not true. Because Jesus said, there are many who have Satan as their father. They need to change fathers. And so citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is, is a heart matter. It's not a matter of professing, just professing and spewing out words out of your mouth. The Bible says that citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is a heart matter. Your heart has to change. Repentance means to have one's heart rightly directed toward God. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. And so this is an important issue for us then. Because some of us were born in Christian homes, right? If you had parents who were Christians, I, I did, praise God. That, that wonderful blessing. If you had Christian parents, that is a huge blessing, a huge privilege. 
to be born into a Christian home. It's a privilege to have Christian parents who attempt to live out a godly life for you and to teach the Bible to you. But Christian parents and children also need to remember that there are no guarantees. Just because you're born into a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Just like being in a garage doesn't make you a car. Right? You understand? Just because you're parked or sitting in the garage doesn't make you a car, does it? <laughs> That's a funny illustration, but hope you get the point. Okay, just because you're spewing out words saying you're a Christian doesn't make you one. Just because you're born into a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Your, your heart has to change. The reality is you're born with a sinful, unregenerate heart. And so, parents, you must be diligent to lead your children to Jesus. Grandparents, do we have any grandparents here? You must be diligent to lead your grandchildren to Jesus. Don't assume that they're a Christian. Don't assume just because they have you as their grandfather or your grandmother or as their parents, you know, hey, they're, they're going to catch it. No. You need to lead them to Jesus. He's the truth, the way, and the life. So we must understand what it means to present our hearts to God. If we don't understand, how can we show others the way, can we? we it's kind of hard to do that. And so if you're a child of Christian parents, you have to, you, you, well, here's what, you, don't bank on the faith of your parents. You can't say, well, hey, my parents are Christians, so you know I'm trusting in that to get me to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. Each of us is going to stand alone before God on Judgment Day, and we're going to give account for our lives before God. And we, we're not going to be able to stand there and say, hey, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> Jesus, uh, you know, you gave me uh, Christian parents, so surely that's enough to get me into heaven. And Jesus will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not enough. Your heart has to change. The Holy Spirit has to regenerate your heart. Everyone's individual heart must change. That's how you get to heaven. So my friend, beware, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was in Jesus' day. How much closer do you think it is today? Do you understand the reality of this? Judgment day is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready for Judgment Day? But my friend, please understand, yes, God is a God of love, but He will not overlook sin. And you will stand before God. You will. You won't, you won't escape that court date, okay? It's coming. You need to be ready. Are you? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone? The King came the first time in humility, but when the King comes the second time, and He is coming, the Bible makes that quite clear, the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So either you bow the knee willingly today or in the future you will be forced to bow the knee to King Jesus. Where do you stand? Are you willingly bowing the knee to King Jesus? Have you, have you made Him your Savior and your Lord? Have you invited the, Him to control your life say i i confess my sin i hate my sin i want to repent of my sin i want to abandon my sin and i love you more than anything else have you ever come to that point in your life if you haven't today can be the day my my for you my christian friend is jesus truly your king do you love him and adore him with all 
Or is there, is there something in your life you're, you're, you're holding back on? You're saying, you know, maybe the 99%? Yes, ni- I love Jesus with 99%, but there's this 1%. I, he's not getting that part. King Jesus will not get that part. May I remind you that King Jesus knows all? You can't fool him. <laughs> you can't say, well, you know, 99%. Surely God's not going to see that 1% of my life. You know, I can fool him. I'll pull the wool over his eyes. No, uh, wrong. God sees all. He knows all. You cannot fool him. And you will, you will stand before King Jesus, my Christian friend, at the judgment seat of Christ. And you will give account for everything you've done in your body, whether it's good or bad. Are you ready? It's coming, maybe sooner than you think. May God help us by his grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father.